The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning again. So glad you're here at Morgan Hill Bible Church. If you have a Bible this morning, open it up to the book of Acts chapter 17. We're going to be there for the, our whole time this morning. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. Um, the text for today is also printed in the worship guide that you hopefully received as well. Before we jump into the sermon today, I wanted to let you know that you should come back next week because it's going to be a special week for our church. You're like, wow, the pastor is telling us to come back to church next week. Shock, right? Um, but next week's going to be a special week because uh, our former senior pastor, Dave Whitaker, is going to be here and preaching at all three services next Sunday. So it'll be exciting for... Uh, for many of you, that's important and significant because he was your pastor for almost two decades. He served in the church for 17, 18 years as a senior pastor. Some of you are like, Dave who? And that's a great chance to come next week and, and to be blessed by him. By the way, I heard Lynette is going to be here as well. So that's the real reason to come as well. Not just Dave, but Lynette will be here. You can tell him that I said that as well, by the way. So, so we're looking forward to next week and having, having Dave here with us. One of, the, uh, one of the things in our world that we have that's so commonplace, we don't even really think about it, is we have options. We have options at every single thing in life, from career to college to school to food. And perhaps the most obvious one where we've seen this just dramatically transform is you have options when you sit down at home at night and you want to watch TV. Some of you maybe remember the days where you would sit down and turn the TV on and you looked at what was on the four channels that were on TV. Right, what well, was on ABC, NBC, CBS, or PBS, and that was your options. You got one of the four. Some of you maybe even remember the days when they actually turned TV off, like it stopped broadcasting. Literally, it went off. Nowadays, think about it. We have more streaming services than people used to have entire channels at our fingertips, right? And so it's when you sit down to watch, it's not just what channel, but are we going to be looking at Netflix, at Prime? Are we going to actually watch cable? Are we going to watch Hulu, the, Disney? The list goes on and on and on. And our world is filled with options. And amongst this is also for the first time really in human history that we live in a world where there's quote unquote options when it comes to religion as well. See, we live in perhaps for the first time a truly pluralistic society. What I mean by that is that we don't have to go somewhere else to find people of other faiths, other backgrounds, other religions, that they live amongst us. There are friends, there are neighbors, there are coworkers, there are schoolmates, that they're everywhere around us. And certainly, even if there's a worldview or a religion that's not, that you don't personally know someone with, it takes two seconds on the internet to start going online and find good conversation and thinking about different religions of the world. And the question we're gonna look at today is a unique question because it's a question that's now asked because we live in a pluralistic society. And that question that we're gonna look at today as we continue with this Explore God series is this question, is Christianity too narrow? Is Christianity too narrow? It's, it's something that's often asserted against Christianity in our very pluralistic world with all these different religions, all these different beliefs. Why is Christianity so narrow and is it actually too narrow for our world? 
Well, as we do so today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, where Paul is engaging in the city of Athens, which at the time was unique because it was very much so a pluralistic city. You may remember back from philosophy classes and others, this Greek thought, Greek philosophy was kind of the hub of the thinking ancient world. And that was certainly true in Paul's time as well. And we're going to see how he engages with his audience will show us three distinctive traits of Christianity in a pluralistic world. So let's jump in, starting at verse 16, says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, he starts with how he normally does when he would go to any city. He goes to the Jewish synagogue, converses with them. But because this is Athens, a unique place out in the marketplace, he's debating. This is a common thing in Athens where they openly exchange different philosophy and religious thought. And the Epicurean philosophers were those who basically had a deistic view of the world, which is that there is a God, he created the world, but then God has nothing to do with his creation. Right? He kind of has made the world and lets it play out as it will. And the purpose of life is in really just seeking after your own pleasure and happiness. That was, that was core to Epicurean thought and philosophy. The Stoic philosophers were essentially pantheists, that there were multiple gods, multiple things, and that the goal of life was just to live in harmony and was found by worshiping and following these multiple deities that, that one would worship throughout. And so he's speaking to this very diverse pluralistic worldview. They say this, continuing in verse 18. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. When they took him and brought him to the Rapagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. The first distinctive trait of Christianity in a pluralistic world is the strangeness of Christianity. The strangeness of Christianity, that amongst all of the religions of the world and the diverse thought of the world, Christianity in many ways does stand out as, as strange, as unique. And I think that the more we live in a post-Christian, what I mean by post-Christian is we can't assume that anyone we interact with has a biblical background or a Christian worldview. The more we increasingly live in a post-Christian world, the more we need to assume this is how people will view you and I as followers of Jesus. That what you believe is just in a word very strange to them. It's strange because it stands out as different. Now, this is certainly seen by, by these teachers, right? These philosophers as being different. And we sometimes try and go around this today by trying just to bring all religions together and say it's, it's the same thing. Perhaps you've heard this argument from people before. Well, aren't all religions just different paths to the same God, right? They're just different paths, but they ultimately get to the same God. Or perhaps the argument, don't all religions just basically teach the exact same thing? And, and they kind of try and unify all religions, right? And they do this, like, can't we just get along? Don't they all just teach the same thing? Now, are there similarities amongst all of the religions? And is there overlap amongst them? Yes. There is no one thing that says this is uniquely and 100% what we believe. No one else believes anything like what we believe. There are certainly similarities and overlap between many of the religious teachings in our world today. But are they the same? Absolutely not. There are essential places where throughout every religion, there are necessary things that both cannot be true. There are contradictions in what they believe. 
For instance, for many um, religions, primarily those of Eastern religions, the view of God, they view that there is a God, but it is an impersonal God. Their God is a higher force or a higher power. It is not a personal God that one can know and have a relationship with. This view of God cannot be the same as the view of many other religions, such as Christianity that believes in a personal God. That God is not just a higher power, but is an actual higher being that you can know and have a relationship with. Both of those cannot be both true. And even amongst religions that teach that we have a personal God, there's fundamental differences. For instance, one of the religions of the world, Islam, teaches that God would never stoop so low as to take on human flesh. And of course, one of the core tenets of Christianity is that God did in fact come and take on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Those both cannot be true at the same time. There are necessary differences between the two. Another um, area that's often emphasized in Eastern and New, and New Age religions is this idea of karma. Right, idea of karma. This is like the, the religious spiritual talk of our world. If you talk with people who don't really have religious background, this is kind of their fundamental view of life, most of them. It's just karma. Right? I, I want good things for my life, so I put out good things. Right? You put good things out in the universe, you get good things back. I give off positive vibes, so I want positive vibes. Right? It's you get what you put out, the idea of karma. Christianity, the very tenet of Christianity is this thing called grace, which at its very core is you get what you don't deserve. Karma and grace cannot both coexist. Either one is true or the other, but they are at fundamental odds with one another. Grace says you get from God exactly what you don't deserve, whereas karma says everything that comes to you is exactly what you deserve. Lastly, when you look at the final goal, what these religions teach about heaven or the afterlife or reincarnation, they are at odds with one another. They cannot all be true. And so amongst these in our world, Christianity will stand out as unique, as different, and as strange. Now, I want to make sure I'm pause here to make sure you don't hear what I'm saying wrong. I'm not saying as Christians to go out and be strange for the sake of being strange. There's plenty of Christians who are already doing enough of that, right? A lot of you are like, oh, I know some strange Christians out there, right? So, so I'm not saying that we need to be like socially awkward and backwards and dress weird and be, that, that's not at all what, what I'm saying because that's certainly not why they thought Paul was strange. No, notice what was strange, verse 18. What was strange at the end of verse 18? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. See, Paul stood out and, and in our pluralistic world, this is what makes Christianity strange and stand out from everything else in the world. It's the person of Jesus and the event of the resurrection. The person of Jesus, did he exist? Is he who he says he is? And the events of the resurrection, did it happen? Because if Jesus existed and the resurrection happened, that makes all the difference in the world. If Jesus didn't exist or Jesus wasn't God, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity ceases to exist as it stands. He comes back to the core. What are we about? We're about Jesus and the resurrection. This is the core to Christianity. This is what makes Christianity strange and unique in our world. Now, if you're someone who's checking out religion or, or ex exploring different worldviews and beliefs, or maybe you've grown up in Christianity, but you're starting to wrestle through some of these deeper questions and exploring what other worldviews are teaching, I just wanna encourage you, as you look at what Christianity teaches, don't get bogged down on other things that you don't get to Jesus and the resurrection. 
Right? Don't get bogged down on other things which are important, but second, third, or sometimes even fourth tier issues that you don't get to the core of what Christianity teaches, that is, is Jesus, God, and man, and did the resurrection actually happen? You know, I, I see some people, I know, who, get, who can get so bogged down on this idea of are we predestined or do we have human free will? And how does that overlap? And the Bible talks a lot about it and it's a good place to wrestle. But if you go down that rabbit hole and are like, I have to have this 100% figured out before I move on to Jesus, you'll be stuck in that rabbit hole the rest of your life. You'll never get out of it because we cannot physically understand it in our human minds, how it works. But if we get stuck there and we never deal with Jesus or the resurrection, we're getting stuck on something that ultimately isn't as important as Jesus and the resurrection, as important as that is. Or maybe for some people, they want to check out the Bible. So they'll start reading through it. They'll get to Genesis one or two. And then they're like, all right, before I move on any further, I need to know how old the earth is. Are we thousands of years old or billions of years old? You know, the reality is, I hate to break this to you. It doesn't actually matter that much. It's not the core of Christianity. Now, have your beliefs, study it, figure out, like this is not a bad thing to learn, but Christianity does not rise or fall. And if the world is thousands or billions of years old, Christianity rises and falls as, is Jesus God? And did the resurrection happen? That's the core of our faith. And don't get stuck on how old the earth is and never get to who is Jesus and did the resurrection happen? That's where Paul pushed them to right away, Jesus and the resurrection. By the way, for those of us who are Christians, this is what we should be known for distinctively in our lives. There were people about Jesus. There were people whose lives have been changed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that we have new life because of his life. You know, too often, out of good intentions, Christians can become known for the wrong things. I want to make sure to challenge us in this season to be known for who Jesus is, that that's the core of our faith. One of the things that often Christians, and often very well-meaning, I don't mean anything bad about it, but often what happens is, is we put other identities in front of and that we're known for instead of Jesus. I hate to break it to you, but if you didn't realize the date, the presidential election is in just over a year. It's going to be talked about, I think, a lot in the upcoming months, if it's anything like the last several elections. And there will be a lot of things said about what Christians are for, what Christians are against, who Christians vote for, who Christians don't vote for. And that politics is important. You should go vote. It's a right we have. It's a very good thing to do. But I would propose to you that if your friends, family members, coworkers, if they associate a political party with you before they associate Jesus with you, you're emphasizing the wrong thing in your life. And when people think about you, they think this political party, they don't think Jesus first, you're overemphasizing things. You know, if you're getting it off track because Jesus is the core of what it means to follow after God. Jesus is the core to Christianity, not these other things, which are good and important, but ultimately secondary and follow after him. Paul was known for Jesus and the resurrection. May that be what we are known for as well. So he gets to, to speak to this crowd. It says this, continues, verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. But therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything." 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him, toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being." as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The second unique distinctive of Christianity in a pluralistic world is the inclusiveness of Christianity. The inclusiveness, the radical inclusiveness of grace and of who Jesus is and what Christianity teaches. Now, before we get in and look a little bit at the, con- at the content of what Paul teaches, I just want to point out that what Paul does here in, in presenting to the people here in Athens is a masterclass in what we call contextualization. If you were here about a month or so ago, we talked about this. It's about presenting the gospel in different ways, depending on our audience, because understanding and knowing their background. And this is a very different audience than where Paul normally presents the good news about Jesus. Normally in in the New Testament, when we see messages from Paul, it's when he shows up and he goes to a a primary Jewish audience at the synagogue. And so he starts with the Bible and he talks about it. But here it's very different. These are Greek men and women who have very different worldview. And so notice what he does with them. First, he finds common ground with them in a very non-threatening way, right? I notice that you are very religious, He doesn't show up and say, hey, I notice you're stupid and think these idols are actually worshipful, right? He doesn't show up and insult them. He says, hey, listen, I understand that you you recognize there's something that you need to be worshiping, that there is a God, that that there is something else out there and that your heart is pursuing after. And so, so he finds commonality with them. He actually quotes in verse 28 twice from sources that are in Greek thought, and he never cites here the Bible. Notice if, if he was speaking to a Jewish audience, what does Paul almost always do? He turns to the Old Testament and he says, hey, listen, this is the Messiah. This is Jesus who's come and fulfilled this. If you were to open the Old Testament to these Greek guys, they'd be like, yeah, we don't think that's true. So like, why are you, why are you pointing that out to us? Increasingly in our world, if you go to share your faith with someone, you're like, hey, but look, the Bible says it's true. They're like, yeah, well, I don't think the Bible's true. So why would I care about that either? Our evangelism can't just be, well, the Bible says this, therefore you have to believe it. We have to engage and contextualize with them. So in verse 28, the the two people that he's pulling from, the first in him we live and move and have our being. Scholars think that it's a a man named Epimendus of Crete, excuse me. And the second one for we are indeed his offspring is a line from a poem of a Greek philosopher named Aratus. See, and so he engages with them, engages in their world, and then goes on to start to show the differences of biblical Christianity versus their belief system. But he does it in a respectful and honoring way to gain an audience with them. And notice some of the commonalities that he finds with them are first is that God is the creator of all people. In verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He's saying that, that God has made the world. He, he says there's, there's a purpose in this life, that God gives life to all life and breath and everything to all mankind. You may not sense it in this, but Paul most likely here is actually attacking already some of their presuppositions that they had that he's wanting to correct based on what Jesus has done. Verse 26, where he says, and he made from one man 
every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth is most likely a direct tack on them and their view of race in the world. See, in the, in the Greek thought of the time period, there were two groups of people in the world. There were those who were Greek and there were barbarians. Those were your two options, right? I'm not a historian, but I'm thinking barbarian, probably not a compliment to everyone who's not Greek, right? And so they were saying, hey, if you're Greek, <laughs> barbarians, right? And what does Paul say? No, not, not in how God works. God doesn't look at you and say, oh, you're Greek, you're Jewish, you're this, you're that, of any of the backgrounds that are highlighted in the New Testament that we would find today. Like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's what you need to come to God. He says, no, God created everyone and wants all to have a relationship with him. It doesn't matter of your, your backgrounds or anything like that. And he's starting to attack some of these views that they had of, of your, your religious or your faith or your family background would accompany how you can approach God. He then moves into this view that God is actually close to them. Verse 27, attacking this deistic thought that God created the world and then just kind of lives up there, right? The, the we, he is actually not far from every one of us for in him, we live and move and have our being. Lastly, he, he gives this idea that God is so close to us that he can be known by all of us, right? Verse 28 says that we are indeed his offspring, now, this is a, a phrase that often is, is asked by people or, or twisted by people. And I think they mean it a little bit differently for sure here than how Paul uses it. One of the places that I sometimes have conversations with people, um, I used to at least, was on an airplane, right? So you sit down in an airplane, kind of make small talk with the person next to you. What, what do you do for work? What do you do for work? Mine's pretty easy to share the gospel when I tell them what I do for work. It's hard to hide that, right? Now, I don't do so much witnessing on the planes anymore. I travel with two little children. I'm just trying to not lose my witness while I'm on the plane. But back before, when I was by myself or just my wife and I, right, the, the conversation I heard this multiple times from people. Well, you're, I'm a pastor. Oh, okay. Well, I think all people are God's children. I think all people are God's children. That's a phrase that's kind of around in our world. And I'm like, well, I was like, well what, do you, what do you mean by that? Because often what people will say when they mean by it is, well, God accepts and loves all of us just as we are and no one needs to change anything about their life to have a relationship with God. I'd be like, not, not, not what the Bible teaches, for sure. But what does he mean here when we are indeed his offspring? If by we are all God's children, you mean, hey, every single person is made in the image of God and designed to have a relationship with God. And so there is a natural bent in every human heart to want to seek after divine things. And we are drawn to that. If that's what you mean, then, then yes, because that's, that's what Paul is meaning here, that we are made in the image of God. We are created every single one of us to have this natural desire to know God. It's what we were created for. See, what Paul is doing in these, is in these contextual terms to, to this audience is he's highlighting the incredible truth of the grace of God for us. The grace of God for us. And that this, it doesn't matter where you are from or what you have done. There is grace in God's heart to welcome you into the family of God. The Christianity is radically inclusive. And that we don't stand here when you want to place your faith in Jesus and say, well, what do your parents believe? We don't stand and say, what have you done in your life? We don't stand here and say, what, what nationality or what ethnicity are you? We say, if you want to place your faith in Jesus, you are welcome because the grace of God covers everything. See, for some people though, there, there seems a, a, is a perceived barrier between them and God. And if you feel like in your life, there's a barrier between you and God that he would never accept you for, I just wanna propose that's an artificial barrier that you've put in place, not something that God has put there. 
That if there's a barrier, it's artificial that you've placed, not something that God has placed. And I found that so often what happens is we put these barriers in place because of rejection that we've experienced somewhere in our lives. Now, all of us have experienced rejection at some point and at some level in our lives. And what we often do is say, well, if I was rejected by people for this, then certainly God would reject me for the same thing. And we put an artificial barrier. For many of us, maybe we grew up and we heard the message coming to us, maybe from a parent or from a teacher or a coach, that you're, you're just not good enough. You're not good enough. And it comes many ways. If only you were more like your brother. If only you acted like your sister. If only you were like your friends. If only you were like, we, we often, lots of us have this fear of rejection and we feel like people have rejected us in life because we're, we're not good enough. And so then it comes to me coming to God. If I get rejected by people for not being good enough, why wouldn't God reject me for not being good enough? And we put in our own heads this barrier that I'm not good enough, so God would want nothing to do with me. For many of us, maybe we've been in a relationship with someone before and we felt like it was, it was progressing. Like, hey, well, this is great. It's going places. And then something came up from your past. Some mistake, some issue, something you did many years ago in your past came up and the person left you. They're like, I don't want anything to do with that. And they left. And the natural assumption is, hey, if I've been rejected by people because of my past, God's going to reject me because of my past. If God really knew my heart and knew the things I've done and saw my struggles, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. For some people, because of their sexuality, they've experienced rejection by others, by family or by friends. And so they would naturally then assume, well, if I've been rejected by people for that, God doesn't want anything to do with me because God would reject me just like how other people also rejected me as well. I was reminded of a, a friend of mine many years ago who I invited to church and his response broke my heart because he looked at me and said, Michael, your church doesn't want people like me. Your church doesn't want people like me. In other words, he had created an artificial barrier in his head that, hey, there, there's something between me and God that God would never want anything to do. The reality is the great inclusivity of the grace of Jesus Christ is it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your struggle is. It doesn't matter what you've done. There's grace in God's heart for everything. There's no barrier between you and God that God's grace cannot and will not overcome if you would simply let it. The Christianity is radically inclusive. Verse 30 continues and finishes his argument. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. The third distinctive trait of Christianity in a pluralistic world is the exclusiveness of Christianity. The exclusiveness of Christianity. Is Christianity inclusive? Yes. Is it exclusive? Yes. And what Paul teaches by this and what the Bible clearly talks about is that Exclusive, we mean this, that only those who repent of their sins and place their belief in Jesus will be saved. That only those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus will have salvation. Notice what he says, that the call is to repent, to, to confess the wrongdoing, the sin in your life, and to turn to Jesus and make a commitment to turn away from that kind of living. He says that, that one is coming in verse 31. He's fixed on a day where he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, there's a message that doesn't go over great in our world today, right? That someone's coming to judge the world, 
right? That sounds very harsh in our modern, sophisticated minds. And we have to get around, oh, well, I don't, I don't want a God who, who judges people. And one of the ways that I've heard people get around it being, you know, we don't need a God who judges people because it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as it's sincere. As long as you're sincere about what you believe, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Now, sincerity does matter. We need sincere people who believe what they believe. But sincerity does not change reality. And if you sincerely believe a lie, you're sincerely believing the wrong thing. For instance, a week ago, there were people who sincerely believed that the Dallas Cowboys were a better football team than the 49ers. They were sincerely proven wrong a week ago, right? We don't need just to be sincere about things. We need to understand the truth about it as well. And the truth is, is that because God has made the world, he has the right to judge the world. But notice, he will judge it in righteousness, If the last week and a half hasn't convinced you that we need to serve a God who comes back and will judge the world of evil and wickedness and make all things right again, I don't know what will make you convinced of that. That we need a God who will judge evil and make all things right again someday. And he's done this. He's fixed who to judge? A man whom he's appointed. It's Jesus. Why is Jesus the one qualified to be a judge? He's raised, given assurances, notice it by the raising from the dead. Where does Paul come back to again? The person of Jesus, the event of the resurrection. Notice how he always comes back to it. It's about Jesus. And why is it Jesus? Because of the resurrection from the dead. That it's because of what Jesus has done that he has the right and the authority to function as the judge over mankind. As one pastor put it many years ago, which I love, if a man can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, I just go with whatever that guy says. That's the essence of Christianity, is that Jesus lived a life, predicted his own death and resurrection, did it. There were hundreds and hundreds of eyewitness accounts to his resurrection. And that's the core to our faith, that Jesus proved he is God through the events of the resurrection. What what Paul is, is teaching here is that because God is the creator of all, because God has made all things, we live in God's world. Because we live in God's world, God has the authority and the right to tell us what we need to do to get to God. It's not up for you and I to decide how we go about it. It's for God to set the boundaries, the limits. This is how you do it. You know, uh, a couple months ago, this spring actually, I had the joyous occasion of uh, needing to transfer my license. I had lived here for a few years and never transferred my license over, but it's about to expire. And so I had the joyous occasion of going to the DMV, which I'm sure you and look forward to just as much as I do. So I tried to get the strategy, how can I implement my suffering, I mean my time in the DMV. And so, so I was like, All right, I'm gonna sneak in in the afternoon, like right a little before they close and try and get everything done. So I show up, I've got every document ever that I can think of that they may need. They're like, okay, all the, all the stuff's right, perfect. But because I'm transferring from out of state, I have to take the written test. Suddenly I feel like I'm 16 all over again. I'm like, what's the big red, stop. That's what that one is. Okay, like I get, I'm like, okay, I gotta take the test. She goes, but I'm sorry, we can only give the test out if you have at least a half an hour to finish the test. I look at the clock, it's 4.32. I'm like, this is painful. But I know better than to try and argue with her. The rules are the rules. She doesn't make them. She can't change them, right? So she's like, but you can come back in the morning and you can take the test first thing. Just bring all this right back in. They'll get you right to the front of the line and you can take the test right away. Great, what time do you open? We open at eight o'clock in the morning, fantastic. I show up at eight o'clock on the one day a week that the DMV opens at nine. It's like, it's always something, right? So I go to Starbucks and then I come back and at nine, there's like 25 people in line, right? 
I'm like, okay, well, so I just had to wait in line. Eventually I had to take a test to, to get my California driver's license. But what if I would have just come back, seen the line and been like, this is too much of a hassle. I don't want to do it this way. I'm just going to create my own little piece of paper, right? Certified to drive. I've been doing this for decades. I don't, I'm a good driver. I don't get in accidents. I'm good to go. I'm going to make my own way. And that, that's what I'm going to do. Good intentions out of my heart, right? Maybe pure. I, I, I got nothing malicious towards other people. What happens when I get pulled over at some point by an officer and he asks for my license? Well, I don't have one. Why not? Well, I don't think I need it. What is he going to say? Well, I'm sorry. You are under the authority of the state of California. Whether you like it or not, the state has the authority to tell you what you have to do to drive a car. And it's you have to take this test. You have to do the things to get the license. Why? Because I'm in the state of California. We live in God's world. We can fight back against it. We can try our own way. We cannot like it. But God has said, this is how you can have a relationship with me. It's through Jesus. And it's radically inclusive because it's to anyone who wants to put their faith in Jesus. The message is there. Anyone can, but it's exclusively through Jesus. So is Christianity too narrow? Well, my answer would be no. I don't think it is because Christianity is both profoundly inclusive and exclusive. First Timothy 2 puts it so well. Capturing both of these, speaking of God, it says this, God who desires all people to be saved. Notice the inclusivity there in God's heart. God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I love how that passage is so inclusive but also so exclusive at the same time. Doesn't matter what you've done, God's heart is for you to come to him. And there's one way to do it. It's through Jesus. It's because of what Jesus has done for you. Exclusively through Jesus, all can be saved. Exclusively through Jesus, all can be included in the family of God. God, we do thank you for Jesus and that he has made a way where there was no other way and that in him alone do we find life and hope and salvation. God, I pray for anyone who's here this morning who maybe has been trying things their own way or not liking the way that you've done. God, your heart is open to them even this moment. The grace of the gospel is so radically inclusive, it will cover every mistake, every sin, every thought, every deed we've ever done. So if you've never placed your faith in Jesus today and you want to have a relationship with God through his son, today you can simply pray that. Confess your sin, repent of the wrong and trust in Jesus for salvation. God, we worship and praise you that you have made a way to reconcile us to you and it's through Jesus Christ and we pray that in his name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.